is like, we don't, I mean, sure, we can do the welcome to Africa gym, but we don't hardly ever do that. And it's just like, let's get into a conversation that, that's really fascinating for us and mm. it'll be fascinating for other people. Cause you know. yeah, cool. I mean, well, once you start recording, maybe I can respond to that because yeah, <laughs> um, you were talking about yeah. forms and I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about in Chinese martial arts and Sistema because to me, I love the forms because they're a vessel uh, or a manual that I can always refer back to. And then I can use uh, interactions that I have with other bodies and incoming force and information that I'm picking up from those experiences. Then I can put that into the form and then it has a place for me to put it like a like a container uh, versus like if I had only if I could only practice Sistema and you're just doing the partner drills some sometimes there's nowhere to put that or nowhere to go back to that unless you have a partner and you can interact on that level mm -hmm. um, yeah so tensionalities you can reinforce that in your form um, and like two for Say Tai Chi, I, there's different ways that I can execute the form. If I'm thinking about incoming force or if I'm thinking about partner work or push hands, I take on a different posture. Mm. Uh, then if I'm thinking of more of aligning my spine and letting the chi flow uh, and practicing it in that way, it might not always apply directly to how I would use the same movement with incoming force of another person. So there's there's all these different ways to to apply the forms or use the forms. You can have different tensionalities based on your uh, intention or the results that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I find like <clears throat> the um, the people who are studying you sort of free form movement, you know, like the Edo portals of the of the world. Mm. I think he's come from such a background of like of structure that now he can reject the structure, but also that mm -hmm. what my journey has, well, what I've learned from my journey is like <laughs> that um, even if I have a sort of a natural inclination just from like roughhousing with my older brother or something when I'm growing up, like it may not be, um, the most efficient way to structure my body in order to maximize the effort, right? And I think that's what yeah. the forms do for me is like give you a container to, or rather, um, yeah, make you a bit more efficient in, yeah. in those movements, you know? Yeah, and if you follow the principles of the form, uh, when you go to... Uh, kind of be more spontaneous or reactionary in a combat setting or a sparring setting, um, your muscle memory will respond, hopefully, according to those principles that you have trained in high repetition because of the form. So they kind of, the, the form and the application kind of inform each other constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think those stories of uh, when you know, the people who are most likely to get beat up <laughs> in a fight are the ones who, um, like, you know how they say, like, oh, people who train actually end up not 
uh, faring well in actual fights because they're so constrained by the form. And I think that's that's exactly it. It's like if you can yeah, liberate totally. yourself from the form and just allow the muscle memory to occur, be present, then you won't have that problem. Yeah, and I mean, I found. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the the pandemic hasn't been good for two people <laughs> training yeah, uh, group exactly. trainings, um, but. Um, Let me throw this into the mix because. Um, I think really what I'm gesturing towards is that whatever, so whether or not you frame a particular training methodology as having forms, like there's always, if you step back far enough, you're going to notice that there are movement patterns, you know, like, so in Systema, for instance, while ostensibly there are no forms, there are ways to strike. Right? There's principles of striking that then get linked to various kinds of conditioning exercises that then get linked to various kinds of drills. So it's, it's more open, but there is still this like structural set of constraints or pathways. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, th I think that's really important. But I think what's, what I have always loved about Sistema um, is that, and this is what we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, is that built into it is this kind of um, emergent, complex, physical problem solving, right? That mm -hmm. I think for me is, is the thing that bridges the gap from something that I might do with repetition solo to actually how I'm going to interface with the environment, especially with a, you know, another living body or multiple living bodies in the environment. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that I don't think there's a huge amount of benefit to having some kind of informed and form-based daily practice but i think that often what happens for many of us is that we lean so heavily into that that we end up in the situation that lucas is describing where whether it's intentional or not we like we're entraining ourselves into a set of constraints and lindsay it sounds like yeah. you have solved that particular question for yourself in a really elegant way but i think this is one of the the bigger challenges of often training in traditional arts, if you do want to apply them in a, in a free form combative context, is that it, how do you use constraint and freedom in a way that has kind of this yin and yang transformational dance, as opposed to like either going totally, you know, formless and consequently floppy maybe in a way where like your thinking and your body can't have enough intention and attentional focus to really really direct what you're doing with your your will and your spirit to express in a way that we would think about from an internal martial arts context but also if we spend all of our time engaged in these like really robust practices that are primarily solo and so i'm using my imagination i'm using my intent i'm using the way that i'm generating internal power and circulating chi in the system that's all great but unless that gets tested right against an unpredictable context with other living bodies or systems i feel like it's it it gets a little ungrounded um even though often how it feels is very grounded right but it gets ungrounded in a consensual context of you know like reality testing so to speak yeah how i think of it is i've trained my body to have the correct body mechanics and i can 
rely on it to to be able to do whatever movements that I need it to do, whether I'm holding a weapon or it's bare hand. And then the the thing that has to happen in a sparring situation is I have to let go of my mind. I have to stop thinking. <clears throat> I can't be thinking like, okay, here I want to try out to, you know, step to the 45 and I want to um, like use both swords at the same time. What was that drill? You know, I have to completely let go of that uh, and clear my mind basically and let my, my body intelligence take over. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things in Systema is you first, you connect to your breath, you connect, connect to your breathing, because if you're breathing, then you'll keep moving and you won't freeze. And <clears throat> so once you get into that state where you're breathing and you've stopped thinking of what you're trying to do and you're just responding, that's the state that I'm trying to get into, uh, anytime that I'm sparring. And it's, it's easier said than done. It's, you know, I, I think too much a lot of the time. And um, <clears throat> so, but but once the pressure kind of increases and there's no more time left to think, then that's really when I'm most efficient yeah. just uh, and responsive. Mm -hmm. And then the forms um, that I've practiced in repetition, then they can come out in a way that's actually useful. Right. And, I, and again, I think what's cool about Sistema is the shortcut, I think, of it is that you train that phenomenon you're talking about of how to drop it you know like drop thought and exactly. be in a body mind responsive space and so in some respects like if we could just take that particular you know and it's not like a thing but we could take that um conceptual framework and start to apply that like to whatever our martial training is it's like okay but an important thing is not necessarily beating the living shit out of other people, but it is learning how to drop, right, into this other yeah. mm -hmm. space of presence and relationality and, and not try to figure or configure, right, but really cultivate that trust in the body's capacity to somehow perceive and solve these, these questions, you know, these riddles. Solves maybe not the right word, but again, it's probably because I'm thinking of it like, there, there are these physical riddles that we have to kind of like navigate through, you know, so. Yeah, another technique that has been really useful for me when sparring, uh, it's harder to use this if you found yourself in a real life scenario where real blades were involved or your life was really at stake. Um, <clears throat> but in a sparring scenario, it's a really great uh, key that if I can happen to this, I, I start to become more efficient. But the idea is that you aren't afraid of losing. You let go of your fear of losing or, or winning or beating the other person or being on top. Uh, you, you let go of uh, your fear of being hit or um, struck with the sword. Um, and, and Sistema has great exercises for that, too, where you're, like, kind of just, like, desensitizing, you know, and hitting uh, your partner in various ways or doing the really intense massage work. Um, and I do this with my students, too. Like, if we're going to spar with the staff, like, we start out with just massage with the staff and being, like, okay, see, when it hits your head, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, just get used to that feeling so you don't have to fear it and be tense and trying to avoid that. And so once you stop trying to avoid, you know, those incoming forces and you let go, be like, you know, I'm not afraid to lose. I'm not afraid to, to die. 
quote unquote, because that would be the actual result if it you know, was a live blade or whatever. Um, and so you let go of that and you allow the opponent to, to strike you a few times and then suddenly you're able to get inside better because you've relaxed and you're not too worried about if they get one strike in or another strike in. And then that allows you to kind of merge Mm -hmm. and go in closer and get past the the whitewash, um, which is like the zone where you would keep getting hit. Um, So that technique has worked really well for me. If I can just get myself to do that, be like, okay, not afraid of losing or dying. And now I'm, I'm relaxed and breathing and now time has slowed down and I can see and I'm not holding that tension Mm -hmm. of fear. And those are the the phenomena that you were talking about of the training your body to do that as Mm -hmm. well as the the movement mechanics. And then Mm -hmm. if you have those triggers in place, as soon as you, you know, are, are, in a sparring or combat situation, you immediately start breathing, you immediately let go wide angle vision, you know, whatever it is. And you start like moving freely, like we do in the Sistema warmups and that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) So I'm wondering, Lindsay, if we can uh, press the, like the hard rewind button here for a second, (laughs) because I know a, a little bit about how we got here. Well, I know a fair amount about how we actually got to this conversation um, since I invited you to come talk to us. But one of the things that I think it would be cool for folks who are listening to hear about some is how you got where you are. Because I know you've had a pretty wide ranging and powerful journey. We don't need to like roll into a, a super high resolution bio, but just if you wouldn't mind sharing some of the broad strokes, that would be awesome I think yeah for sure so it it all started I started studying martial arts when I decided to go to China when I was 18 and originally I just wanted to understand my heritage I wanted to learn the language and um, I loved movement arts I had done dance in high school and so that that started the journey and all of my martial training from that from age 18 to 24 all took place in China and that ranged from modern wushu in Beijing to Shaolin in uh, Dengfeng and the, the town close to the Shaolin temple and then eventually the Wudong style in Wudong where I you know decided to focus all my efforts on that style and then I came back to the United States um, around age 25 and started teaching. And at that point, I came into this world of martial arts in Western cultures or martial arts in America and found it to be so different than, than, than what my experience had been in China. So it took me many years to reorient myself in that context. <clears throat> and I realized that in that context, everything feels like it's measured by uh, application and um, uh, self-defense and does this work in a fight. And and I really didn't feel like anything was ever measured by that when I was in China because I was in this context Mm of of a temple in Wudang where the Gongfu 
that's not the main objective anymore, really. And I was learning from a Taoist renunciant. And so the practice of martial arts involves so much more self-cultivation and it includes the Taoist principles. Uh, so it starts to steer away from those direct application, um, self-defense, deadly styles of arts. Um, but when I came to the West, everything was measured by that. And uh, so I needed to start cross-training. I needed to start learning other styles that had more direct application in combat. Uh, so... I happened to be teaching at a studio that also offered Aikido and uh, Burmese boxing called Bondo and Capoeira <clears throat> and Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, so I started cross-training in some of those arts. Uh, the boxing really helped uh, inform my movements in a more combative way. Uh, you know, and then also the context of teaching or how people are able to take classes uh, in America was so different than my immersive experience in China where I was alone with my shifu. Everything was based on self-discipline. Every day was about training. He would show me the movements once or twice and if I missed it, then I didn't get to learn that. Um, <clears throat> and so then to be in a context where people are coming, you know, once or twice a week uh, in a non-committal way, um, it took me a while to reorganize in that, in that way <laughs> of how I was going to teach these arts. And then um, fast forwarding, uh, I later learned Sistema uh, and some Muay Thai um, two or three years ago when I went to interview Pedro Solana. Um, and I think that kind of covers the broad strokes of my martial experience. Um, and then if, you know, if you want, we can talk about kind of what, what that Taoist influence on the Wudong Gong Fu is. Uh, yes, because Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so just to give context, Ter uh, Terrence's background is Sistema and uh, Xingyi, would you say? I, I mean, yeah, mostly Sistema, um, Bagua and Xingyi to a degree. I mean, I train, I'm studying Xingyi, uh, Tom Bizio has been my main internal martial arts teacher, so I've studied Bagua with him, I've studied, I'm studying Xingyi with him actively at the moment, um, you know, I mostly engage with internal martial arts as a practice of self-cultivation and specifically in relationship to the practice of medicine, right? Because, you know, Lucas and I are both Chinese medicine practitioners. Um, I do a ton of Twena and, um, you know, as Tom is my main teacher and he teaches Twena kind of like coming out of the internal martial arts traditions and self-cultivation as being the the root and also I would say the branch too of the way that we both understand and express uh, the medicine. So in terms of combative stuff, like, no, I don't, I've never studied either Bagua or Xinyi in a combative context. Not that I'm averse to that. It's just that I'm mostly training on my own. Sistema on the other hand is something that, you know, you, I've studied it primarily in the context that we've been talking about. Um, I studied some, 
gung fu as a kid, you know, like whatever. Uh, it was super interesting and very useful. I was mostly a dancer though, just exploring other movement arts. Um, is that the background you were wanting me to yeah, that's what I'm, unpack yeah, just so a little knows bit? Who she's talking to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And then uh, I studied, I started training um, Northern Shaolin martial arts in around 99, 2000, something like that. And um, I mean, as immersive as one can be in the Western culture, you know. And then um, I studied with a gentleman who did Eagle Claw and Northern Shaolin. And then um, studied with Master Yong Ching Ming. I don't know if you know him. He does mm -hmm. the. Yeah. So um, so I went. He, he was sort of. Our school was kind of like loosely affiliated with them like my teacher went and studied with him quite often and then we would go up and do seminars two or three times a year and then I continued that after I left that school and then when I moved to New York about oh god I don't know a long time ago 2006 maybe mm -hmm. um I've been studying with uh Shi Yan Ming uh the Shaolin 34th generation Shaolin uh -huh. mm -hmm. um ever since then and doing Tai Chi, Qigong, Kung Fu. So like I'm, most of my training is like um, lots of Tai Chi, f Yang style from Master Yang in my other school, mo mo predominantly Master Yang style. And then when I got to New York, it's Chen style and, you know, Ro Chen and whatever cool. from Shifu and just lots and lots of um, mostly non-combative, like mm -hmm. um, non-partner drills, but mm -hmm. In my own practice, I try and implement more of that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, just to give you the bare bones, what's... Yeah. Because I'm finding more so now that I'm getting a bit older, Wudong style is like really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. And I want to learn more and more because like I got a... Um, recently got a, <laughs> a DVD of um, uh, Tai Yi Xue Men Jin. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, yeah. It's really different than some of the Shaolin Jian mm -hmm. forms that I've, it's like, and the more I practice it, even if I don't have a teacher, the more I, I practice it inherently, the movements are like saying different things. Yeah, you know? well, and Jen, cool. straight sword is the, the main weapon of the Wudong style. Uh, I never learned any straight sword in Shaolin, but m mm -hmm. my general perception back then was as soon as I saw the movements in Wudang, everything was much more circular and fluid uh, following a circular path. And in Shaolin, uh, a little more linear. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, speaking of linear, I, I would like to study more Xingyi because that's one of the internal arts that I really haven't been that exposed to however in our style of bagua when we do the striking sequences through the center mm -hmm. of the circular shapes it's very much like shingy i'm not sure exactly what the differences are and there, I, it, sorry uh it's fascinating right like studying shingy even though i'm not training bagua like daily at this point whenever i dip back in my bagua has like improved a sort of surprising amount for mm. not both not training it and for and i don't i mean we could really get geeky about the internal dynamics of like how the straight lines and the coiling and how the circle like how all of that 
relates and my understanding. I don't know that that's necessarily the best use of our recorded time. <laughs> I'm more than happy to like go down that particular rabbit hole. Um, but I do think that, yeah, there's this incredible way that the two, those two arts like really uh, complement each other. Um, it's it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it must be because of the kind of mochabu friction step of building up that power and then and then releasing it. Uh, that seems to be the main. I think there's that, of... but I think at least in the shinyi that I am learning, right? It's it's so austere and so internal that learning how um, I mean, essentially, it's a version of the the microcosmic orbit gets activated, but mm. not in the beginning through some mm -hmm. kind of intentional visual visualization. It's like you just hang out in Santi for these really extended periods of time. And as things start to shift, you start to like feel these changes occur. And then when you take that into Pichuan, right, um, you really are letting those internal dynamics drive the external movement. And so then that stuff is all getting like imprinted into the system Right. And so then when you go and like you're doing dingshu or whatever, it's like that's happening. Right. So then it's like the all those spiraling dynamics have a, a, a deeper underlay of these kinds of other subtler dynamics that I think really kind of supercharge them in some way that may be a little hyper hyperbolic, but like it adds uh, a dimensionality to it that I'm sure there are plenty of other practices that can do. I'm not suggesting that in order to get that that level of um, clarity in the system, you have to do Shinyi or something, but there's a way that um, just the, yeah, the, the potency of really hanging out in Santi and in this style doing the Tunasuba, which is like the four continuous breathing exercises that are these, um, it's like a very slow Negong set that really like opens and unwinds the fascia in these ways that um, help facilitate those spontaneous energetic movements happening in the system it just seems to be a very potent way of getting all of that to come online in a pretty deep way but the most interesting thing about it to me is that like the the practice of it is mostly like stumbling around in the dark and feeling hmm. like you're just getting it entirely wrong and you have no idea uh -huh. what you're doing and this is pretty much a universal and then you start to notice in other places like you know you find something happen and you're like, oh, wow, something, I'm, my body is learning something, even though mostly mm -hmm. I just am like feeling like, I don't know, I don't get this. Like, okay, I'm just like, you know, eating bitter for long periods of time every day. And then it, but what I've heard from folks that have trained this style of shinny for extended periods of time is that after about three years, mm -hmm. usually then you start to maybe have a sense that you're understanding something more directly in the practice of the art itself but often until then it's like coming in in these other places and spaces so yeah I, I think know. most arts or all arts or skills have like a, a steeping time and then uh, you know if you keep putting those repetitions in and then you finally reach some magic number of repetitions then something unlocks and you start mm -hmm. to understand it and you're yeah. you know stumbling for a long time and then all of a sudden you just can do it and you understand it and your body's able to integrate it. Uh, something I remember being told a long time ago is that in 
many traditional Chinese martial styles, the link between Tai Chi, Xingyi, and Bagua was just, it's like they were just all one. Uh, and I find that when I <clears throat> go to train, and maybe I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to train Tai Chi, but then suddenly I want to do some Bagua stepping uh, or some emissions of power or some John Drong standing pillar. Mm-hmm. It's all so interrelated. And that's how it was. That was the context it was taught to me uh, in China. And not only the the martial arts were part of the whole system, but anything then from reciting scripture to calligraphy to uh, you know, uh, you know, just basically ex- it extends to all different arts, you know. And then in in the Wudong Gong Fu, we integrate the ceremonial aspects into the martial forms, which I think is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. So that involves the hand seals, the talisman, and the mantra. And so that becomes this whole other area of study that you then also have to integrate into your martial training. Uh, And, you know, seated meditation, standing meditation really also contributes to the movement quality, uh, the quality in, in your mind and in your spirit and in your intention, but also in the chi flow. Like if I look, if I look at a student Sometimes I'll have a student who their form looks pretty good, but it's kind of missing something. It looks a little bit mm-hmm. um, hollow in a way. And I have them do an hour of standing meditation and have them do that consistently. And then all of a sudden their form feels more full, more rounded, more expansive. They're, their spirit or their energy is more calm and peaceful and then they're conveying that through their form so really with all the arts you kind of have to dapple in all of them a bit in order to get the Mm -hmm. whole picture yeah i find that um so having studied for a, a while in um in a place that doesn't do partner drills um people can be can gain a certain aptitude in, ter- in terms of their forms. But I noticed that um, there's a certain peak and plateau unless you had partner training, mm-hmm. unless you've actually used your body to move someone else's body mm-hmm. or you've had to ground and root in order to move something. Or you just made that connection that like, oh yeah, when I try and push this car out of the snow, I need to, move do like this mm-hmm. you know um and it, and if you do that like you're saying you know you do even just one lesson it's like it completely changes the way they you know you sink your hips or you sit in a stance it's just unbelievable yeah yeah i love too how <clears throat> the internal arts you can carry them with you for your whole life so when you start to feel like you're not that interested in sparring anymore or the combat aspect then you can with the same forms and the same system start to apply it only to health or uh, internal energy cultivation or your spiritual cultivation it 
it can manifest in, in all the ways that you would need it to in your evolution of being human. Do you feel like those areas are, let me, let me say it like this. In my experience, it feels like those things are not particularly separable, even though they are distinct. Um, I'm curious to hear your experience and some of your thoughts on, on that, like on these different aspects of the systems. And you were talking a little bit about the Taoist cultivation and Taoist orientation of the way that you were taught and trained martial arts at Wudong. So yeah, I'm just curious to hear more about your experience in that exploration. Yeah, so the the movement forms become, I guess, a grand metaphor for your experience of life. And it, they provide a way of embodying, uh, let's say, Taoist principles. They create a, a vessel of your body that is more efficient for those higher levels of, say, alchemical cultivation. Uh, because, so if I don't have um, all of these physical training tools to keep my body healthy and keep my chi flowing um, or keep my posture upright, that will, that will kind of influence, say, my seated meditation. Um, can I open up through my hips? Can I keep my spine straight? Uh, <clears throat> and can I be comfortable in seated meditation for a long time? And then, so that would be yes, because of, you know, training all of the physical arts, Tai Chi, Bagua, um, staying healthy, staying fit. Um, you know, when we think of flowing through life, there's, there's a, a body understanding of what that would feel like to flow without without pause, without stopping or freezing, integrating the breath. I, I also find this grand metaphor of, maybe it's just because I am drawn towards martial arts and warrior arts, but I do see a lot of our internal struggles kind of like a battle. <laughs> um, it's like the, the combat within. It's not really about because like we were talking about sparring, right? Um, uh, you know, you're faced off with the opponent and there's this initial need to win or compete. Um, and then you start to work physically on undoing that, but that's all part of the mind. And so we can apply that to life and, and our internal thoughts and struggles uh, that are a little bit like a battle. And so then everything that you're learning in in these movement arts, then you can apply to your thoughts and your emotions and your interactions with other people. And that's, that's why we say that the, the martial training ends up being more about self-cultivation. And so like, if you think about some of the Taoist teachings, uh, one, some that have been present for me recently have been, um, Practicing being content and practicing being nameless. So, because these are things that go directly against the current flow of our 
human life and you know being part of the rat race <laughs> and always needing more and always needing to gain more success more um recognition uh <clears throat> just constantly needing more we're kind of we're programmed or taught or funneled in that direction as being part of society and so Taoism is teaching actually stop and um be content with what you have. If you have enough, which most people, when you really stop and think about it, you have enough. Um, so practicing being content with that. And then I think the practicing being nameless one is really interesting right now because of like how we display ourselves on social media where the common person now can be a public figure um, or be famous basically. Um, <clears throat> And so in Taoism, it would suggest rather, you know, why, why go in that direction? What will that bring you? Um, what will that recognition bring you? And actually, it suggests that it will only bring you more hardship and more struggles. So then what does it look like to be a person in society uh, going against that current, you know, and stopping and saying, okay, I have enough. I don't need more recognition. <clears throat> I don't need to promote my name further. Uh, so, like, that's one way that Taoism informs my daily life. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to practice those principles. Uh, and yeah, another, you know, another key component to Taoism as I experienced it was this idea of renunciation and uh, being a hermit. <laughs> and uh, so that's something that's always like a, I don't know, almost like a dream on the horizon or something to move further and further away from uh, being, you know, sort of shackled to society uh, and finding ways to become more self-reliant or empower myself to be able to do long periods of seclusion. Um, and it's not so much about being alone for me, although I think that that's, you know, important. It's just like, it's like fasting or cleansing or something, you know, you have to spend time alone sometimes to experience that. Um, but to to be further outside of the cities, deep in nature, is something that's really important to me. And it's something that I think Taoism, it's all about that in Taoism, is observing nature, observing how does the Tao move through nature? Uh, and through observing that, what, what, what do we learn? Um, <clears throat> even just being able to see the stars at night, uh, watch the moon cycle um, rise with the sun and, and doing your qigong facing the sun. All of those things are pieces to Taoism that are really important to me to, to infuse into the training context. Uh, so it's not so much about being alone. Actually, I think sangha or community is really important, uh, an important piece of what I want to create. Um, <clears throat> But living closer with the land, I think, is something that Taoism has encouraged me to do. Um, and 
to live a healthy life. For me, the best life that I can live is when I'm training eight hours a day in community. That's when I feel mm -hmm. the healthiest. All of my ailments will go away. Um, and, and my mental health will improve. Uh, and so that, I learned that from my experience in China, where every Kung Fu school that you went to pretty much followed the same schedule, which was wake up, do your qigong with the sunrise, eat breakfast, mid-morning training, eat lunch, rest, take a nap, afternoon training, eat dinner, you know, study in between, meditate at night, and then go to bed. And that, to me, is a beautiful schedule. It's the, the schedule that I feel most at home in. So all of the movement arts, in just the simplest way, maintain good mental and emotional health and well-being that, that then allows you to further uh, evolve in your spiritual path. So without that, if I was just on a spiritual Taoist path, if I didn't have all the movement arts, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that would feel, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, You're a mom, right? I am. Yeah. So I have a kid. She's 11. Um, I'm always curious to hear how parents navigate this kind of terrain, right? Because it's like, you know, as a person without a kid, we may not realize it at the time, but we have so much um, spaciousness to make decisions about what we do and when we do it. And, you know, I absolutely love being a dad. Um, certainly, certainly the greatest gift that is in my life. And, right, one of the best parts, but also the most challenging parts of that gift is that um, it's kind of the most primary teacher of the reality that we're really not in control of anything, right? Because, you know, you can fool yourself maybe into thinking that you're running the show and then you have this being that <laughs> needs, needs you now. Um, and, you know, depending on how old they are, that now can potentially, you can be like, okay, give me a minute to finish this. But certainly there's periods of time where there's no give me a minute, mm -hmm. right? Um, so mm -hmm. I, I'm, yeah, I'm just curious to hear if you have thoughts, feelings, questions, ways that you work with that, ways that that informs your practice and your relationship to your training and, and, your, relation, and your experience of Taoism. Yeah, um, it for me being a mom and practicing Taoism and uh, it's it's all part of that cultivation of human character, uh, our our interpersonal relations and and how we handle um, events in our daily life or things that I'm working through with raising a daughter. That's all part of the path to uh, where I'm, you know, grinding myself or facing challenges uh, in my daily life. And if I was just um, able to, you know, freely go and, you know, be a hermit in the mountains or something like this, then that piece of my education would be missing. Uh, and, and so I think it, it's an important part. Um, it's an important part too of the concept of 
the continuation uh, of our ancestry. And so for me, having a child has, it's this forward motion through time where you're passing on your seed, but then it's the, the thing that makes you reflect on your ancestry and realize that you are your ancestors. And there's this link back through time. And I'm not just a single person in isolation, I, I am a continuation of this DNA. Um, and so for me, having a kid, you probably feel the same. It's like then you start to really reflect on your own childhood and your relationship with your own parents and, and how that's all influencing and being um, passed down. So I think some of the greatest work that we can do in healing ourselves and our genetics, really, and our DNA is, is through uh, our own self-work or shadow work so that I'm not passing that down to her. Um, and I try to take her out into nature and share with her some of these ideas that I have or that, you know, Sherfu taught me. And, and she's met Sherfu and um, I've taken her to the temple in China. So she has impressions of all of that culture of the temple and the mountains and <clears throat> I take her out to the land and uh, it's, it's important. I think to, to take her out on those journeys. Uh, I think she'll remember that throughout her life and um, she doesn't always want to go, you know, but then once she sinks into it, she starts having fun and creates really long lasting memories. I think, you know, <clears throat> I take her to see the river, you know, and the, the caves and I take her up onto the mesa and she sits up there and you know falls into a, a state of imaginary play and like singing on the rocks and things like that and so I just try to integrate it she doesn't necessarily always want to directly learn martial arts from me but what I've noticed is that she learns by way of watching and I guess the transmission really flows pretty clearly through me and her and so sometimes I'll I'll put out like the bagua tape in the living room for an online class and she'll just start walking it and I'll be like and it, she'll be walking it really well you know because she's just <laughs> mimicking what she saw me do uh -huh. and I didn't teach her anything she just saw me do it and then it kind of transferred into her body and mm -hmm. so I kind of try to teach her in that you know non-direct way and it seems to be working um and she likes to listen to me chant scripture it's calming for her uh she grew up sometimes like as a baby we would play some of the healing music for her and she would fall asleep to it so she she has exposure to all of these things um in in an indirect type of way and so i just hope you know that she understands me and and my path and uh, she'll continue to have her own understanding of that as she grows up. Uh, but it, it is kind of my my link to staying in in kind of a more societal life for sure because she needs to have friends and she needs to, you know, live closer to town and all of those things. So, uh, but I think I mean if we can't make uh, sacrifices like that and take responsibility for you know, for say a child, um, 
I mean, that's been a huge part of my um, maturation. Like, I feel like it's a it's a maturity kind of <laughs> leveling up. Uh, you, you just have a, such a stronger responsibility than if you don't have a child. Um, and you have to make sacrifices. And I think that that's all part of the path of cultivation. Yeah, um, my host parent when I was living in Japan, um, his when I was there, his kids were like, I want to say like 17 or 18, and then like 21, something like that, his two daughters. And so he's just about to be empty nested, you know. And he used to take me to the Zen temple um, like once a month. And on those rides, we get to talking. And and I, for whatever reason, asked him what he wanted to do when he um, when he retires. Because he's a really busy guy. He's part of everything. A big pillar of the community. And he's like, I just want to be a monk. And I totally did not understand. I thought he was kidding, actually, at first. Um, but I didn't really understand uh, what he meant by that until... Well, probably re- pretty recently, you know, we're just sort of thinking about y- that role. Like you, you've done your part, you've raised your kids, you've um, played your part in society, you've, you know, done all the things that you're socially responsible for, or even met all sorts of sort of goals. And then to truly just sort of detach from all of it and just be, it sounds unbelievably pleasant yeah i think it must be sort of where i want to be (laughs) i think it's part of our human nature to crave that um to crave that simple life and aloneness and then well usually it seems happens you go deep into that aloneness and then you realize actually i really want to be around people and i need people um and so i think we just have to find balance but that's a really good point of staying for me anyway, staying present in, in this phase of my life, because there will be other phases, right, where my daughter grows up, and then I have that, you know, freedom again to 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 be a renunciant or something like this. Um, so to really enjoy the now uh, and this time with her instead of, you know, wishing I was in this different kind of state or whatever, um, being present with her. Another thing that I was... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, didn't, didn't one of your teachers have kids? As I, was, I think I was reading your bio and one of the teachers... Leisure they, Or had a family at least, right? And then became an renunciate, maybe? Yeah, he did. He did, yeah. He... he how, did that, he how did that go? <laughs> he fully did the renunciation path where he leaves his family name behind and uh was Mm -hmm. just gone you know to become a renunciant um and then later was reconnected with his family and his daughter and that's really sweet so i know his daughter too and um she visits the temple and yeah uh but what i was gonna did he ever talk to you about that and like oh sorry well, I was going to go into talking. I feel like these, these stories are interconnecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some parallels, yeah. Well, I was going to hmm. just bring up one interesting thing about having children uh, from the perspective of a woman. So 
Taryn, I don't know if you would be able to relate to this, but when you carry child, when you're pregnant, um, and the whole process of then giving birth to this being is very similar to the path of alchemy and creating a light body. So sometimes I use this as a way of explaining alchemy to people who are really struggling to understand what, like, what is that all about? Um, and there's different forms of alchemy, but the way that it was always conveyed to me was the creation of this light body, this other body within your body using only the materials that exist inside of the body. And so we actually see that every day, like a miracle, a woman gets pregnant and creates a body inside of her body only from what is already present. Uh, and then adding, you know, nutrition, food and air. Uh, so if our bodies are able to create another being <laughs> from only the materials present, uh, to me, that's evidence that that alchemy is is possible, even though it, it is kind of the impossible and you always have to kind of hold it in, in both ways. But so because you don't you don't know what your child looks like. It's in the void during the pregnancy. It's in this kind of dark void. Um, and then the moment that they are born, you finally get to see them and they come into kind of our manifested physical reality after that. And uh, so to me, it's this fascinating um, similarity to, to alchemy itself. I, I think it's a, a perfect analogy because we create malady for ourselves all the time. We grow abnormal tissue in ourselves all the time, you know? So, if, and when we, at least we'll, Karen and I try and do on a daily basis is when we try and figure out how to rectify that to get someone to understand where like potentially how that came about or um, you know do some sort of exogenous treatment that hopefully enlightens them in a way that they can uh, see those habits that brought them to that place um, that should rectify that like a literal change in tissue mm -hmm. and and besides the fact that like we are composed of um the four main elements that are the same in the entire universe so like physical elements so it to me it doesn't of course we can create um if nothing else optimal health within ourselves you know aside from any other sort of, you know, creation of energy or, um, um, how do I said, you know, cultivation, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like true. Scientifically kind of makes sense to me, you know, not even just like a felt sense that I've already experienced, you know? Yeah, applying it to healing the power of the body to transform its tissues um, and its cellular design is, mm -hmm. is present. We have that ability it's just about how how can we yeah unlock that that intelligence or change the design uh, in order to heal yeah and in some respects right like uh, and i have a much 
more limited understanding of Dao's inner alchemical practices and know more about like secular nadan than I do about. I mean, I've I've read a number of texts that do talk about like growing this embryo or this light fetus as being like the way that that alchemical process unfolds, but. I mostly know about that, like in an academic sense, and that I've like I've read. It's not a practice that I have uh, a personal relationship to in that way. Um, but I think, insofar as that, my understanding of that and of healing, what I would say is that in many respects, it seems like one of the distinctions is that. Um, in those kinds of inner alchemical practices, seeking to use one's own intention to um, foster that process, right? So it's self-directed, but on a conscious level in the sense that I have the intention of creating the conditions for that practice to take root so that this alchemical transformative process can arise. Whereas often in a healing context, at least in the beginning, we're coming to someone else and essentially outsourcing that intentional aspect for that person to help create the context. Now, fundamentally, right, the, the person who is either doing the alchemical practice or who is receiving the healing, in quotes, but really the one who is doing, and I think from Lucas and I's perspective, also directing the healing, thinks that they're outsourcing that, right? They're, they're outsourcing the context creation, but they're still doing the work, but they're not necessarily doing it consciously in the beginning, mm -hmm. right? It's happening mm -hmm. more on this level of the innate intelligence of mm -hmm. the body mm -hmm. um, rather than that being harnessed to intentional focus, if that distinction makes sense, right? Um, but I think ideally what we're hoping for uh, is that in the healing process that that shifts so that person can become a conscious collaborator rather than, mm -hmm. than, than an unconscious collaborator um, mm -hmm. in their own process of transformation. If all of that right, makes sense. It goes from like placebo to alchemy, right? Or placebo to, you know, changing your own habits. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I would say it's entirely placebo in that context, mm -hmm. but I mean, that might not be something we need to necessarily well, think... unpack. <laughs> yeah, placebo is, we know how powerful that is. It's almost like we just need to change the the word, though, because we have a negative connotation, I guess. Oh, that, 100%. Oh, if it's placebo, then, oh, we've, we've uh, negated it, negated the process. But if we call right. it um, the, just the power of the mind, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I guess where I was going with that is not that I actually don't have a negative association with placebo, though I agree that often it is looked at askance i sort of am like it's just placebo as you point out it is the power of consciousness right like that's miraculous but more where i was going is that um i think that while that may be a factor within effective medical treatment there is also another set of phenomenon going on which are not placebo and that's more what i was kind of like pointing towards lucas like mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. necessarily going from placebo it might be going from skillful intervention but still one that is largely from the perspective of the person who comes in for support, something that's happening to them, though I'm not saying that's really how it is, but that's the perception to that person mm -hmm. through hopefully a successful course of care, realizing their own, essentially their own agency within their 
healing journey and their life, right? That that's part of that, ideally, we, what we would wish for people in their transformative process is that, that if they don't have that understanding, that that understanding starts to bloom, right? Or take root and then grow and eventually bloom so that they, you know, begin to enter into a different kind of intentional relationship with their own transformative process. Um, yeah, that's why I think what you're doing, Lindsay, is so important because, uh, I mean, I don't know how much treating you do per se. I mean, maybe, I don't know. But um, having having that be all-encompassing, you know, your movement practice is your treatment. You know, maybe there's... Um, maybe there's some crossover because you were saying that there you do with the forms you do use talismans and mudras, and, yeah. mudras right? And so I don't know, but yeah. um, for me that definitely that's it, a kind of honestly where I would like to be with my treatments. I would love to be able to be like, okay, um, you are already part of my class, like so we're moving, we're getting your body going, great. Now I'm going to do this treatment. I want you to focus on these movements for the next like two weeks or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like that to me would be another ideal situation because. I think we need all of it. We need, you know, we need um, the clinical healers. We need the people teaching culture and worldview and context so that we can change our Mm -hmm. habits and change our, um, change our, our daily habits and our ways of thinking. Um, but when I was listening to you talk, Taryn, it was almost like, you know, through your tools, such as like needling or cupping or moxa or twena, you're communicating with that um, intrinsic intelligence in the patient's body and kind of um, being like, and let's remember how to go like this, you know, like as if I was teaching <laughs> the student, like, okay, do the Tai Chi movement a little bit more like this. And it's like you as healers, you're communicating with that body intelligence, reminding, okay, you know, let's, let's bring it back into balance. And then the patient can feel that and start to move in that direction and start to recreate that habit within their body. Um, and people need, we need each other. We need help sometimes to, to get that flowing and get back on track with that. But then if we don't change whatever the root cause of it was in our own lives, then, then we, then we become uh, needing to always go back to the healer and get the symptoms um, readjusted. And um, so I think, I think we need all of it. Um, I do do um, some uh, of those Chinese medicine modalities uh, at home and I, uh, teach some of my students more by way of so that they can uh, almost become like lay practitioners of some of these modalities so that they can treat themselves mm-hmm. um, or treat their friends or their family members on a more day-to-day basis. Uh, and that's really powerful to me. Um, I'm grateful that I have some background in that uh, without, you know, being a, a clinical acupuncturist, um, just so that I can use it on myself or my family members or friends. Uh, so, you know, those are really valuable tools to, to be able to use. Um, like right now I'm using fire healing uh, for some SI joint pain pain that I have. Um, so I'm doing like the Huoliao. Maybe you, have you heard of the Huoliao fire therapy? It's kind of one of the lesser known modalities, but you essentially work with fire um, on the body as a way of applying a lot of heat 
So it's kind of similar to Moxa. You could use it in similar situations for, that you would use Moxa for, applying that, that heat into the body um, and removing cold so, and damp. Is it where you actually have fire on your hand and you sort of into the, I feel like I've heard something one, so similar. That's one method where you, you use alcohol and you okay. light the alcohol on fire. And one method is that you dip the fingers in and then um, vigorously rub it on the location. Um, but the method that I like is to use the wet towels. So you have two wet towels and they're wet with water. And, uh, and then you put the alcohol on it in the, the area that you want to burn. And then you light it on fire and then you snuff it out with the other wet towel. And uh, it's just really amazing technique because you feel like the fire really is interacting with your tissues and your body. Let me ask a clarifying question just because I want to make sure I'm visualizing this with some level of accuracy. So you have two sets of wet towels. You're going to apply one of the, you're putting alcohol on one and because you said it was an SI joint, concern you're putting it on your si joint the, yeah the towel with mm -hmm. alcohol then lighting that and then snuffing it with the other towel yeah is that okay got it yeah uh, yeah and, and it's been helping a lot nice yeah i think that's awesome yeah i don't that's the first time i've ever heard of this modality so that's super cool yeah i could just as I, well use moxa mm -hmm. in the same way but i feel like i've seen a demonstration where the practitioner had gloves and they put the alcohol on their hands and they lit that and they were like doing certain motions on the, on the patient hmm. and then they could snuff it out just by mm, pressing yeah. it down to the, I feel like I've seen that. That's cool. Too. Yeah. Cause then that would be like fire pida <laughs> yeah. combining mm -hmm. the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would, I mean, that's not self treatment kind of, right. how could you, I mean, unless it's your, just your front body, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I'm impressed that you did it on your SI joint. Actually. Oh, I had my partner do it. Yeah. <laughs> I taught him how to do it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my wife has sort of become an expert at cupping. Yeah. Yeah. I well, So speaking of fire, one thing that I kind of wanted to talk about was uh, my experience with the bootleg fire uh, burning through my training grounds. And, I um, wanted... <clears throat> Yeah, I was going to bring it up and see if that was something you were willing to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, because that's been kind of the most significant recent event in my life and uh, has changed a lot of my priorities. Uh, so to explain, I had always dreamed of having my own piece of land that I could create my school on because I've been running my programs on um, other people's lands in remote mountain locations and that's been amazing but it's hard to to kind of design the space exactly how I want it um, so finally was able to buy a cheap piece of land out in eastern Oregon and uh, immediately just felt very connected to this this piece of land and <clears throat> ran run one program on it uh, last June. So it was a three week immersion course. And uh, on the final day of the course, the bootleg fire uh, erupted only four miles away from, from the property uh, by lightning strike. And um, so we had to evacuate and uh, which 
I've had to evacuate uh, from fires in different contexts over the past like five, six years, pretty much once a year. Um, so I was familiar with this process, um, but I wasn't able to get all of my school infrastructure. So a lot of it did burn, but, um, you know, more importantly, the, the, the whole landscape burned. Um, it was a really <clears throat> large fire, uh, burned over 400,000 acres and it burned really hot through this particular tract of forest where my land was it's called a canopy run um so there's zero percent survival rate of the, the trees so everything got completely uh incinerated and uh so to walk that landscape and experience that transformation um that particular um interaction with death the death of a landscape uh, has been teaching me a lot. Um, and you know, when it, when it first happened, I, I had this thought, like, it's so, well, such a Taoist thing to happen. Um, and I guess by that, I really mean that it, um, brought into direct experience, this idea that Taoism expresses of, um, well, detachment, non-attachment, but also that nature doesn't have sentiment. Um, and so what was a very sentimental thing for me to experience uh, to grieve the loss of this landscape that I had loved or the way that it was, because it's actually still there, um, informs me a lot about um, death and dying in a way. I think it's it's one thing to contemplate it and another thing to be able to actually experience the same type of feeling if you had the loss of a, a loved one who was in human form. Um, but to have lost a, a landscape, it's, it's interesting to contemplate death in that way because it's still alive, actually, after death. And the, the spirit of the landscape is still there. And so if we could really understand that humans are no different, you know, that when we die, we are still present in some way. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because it constantly challenges my, um, preference. I would prefer <laughs> that it was alive still. I would very much prefer that, but then I have to constantly encounter and meet that destiny and understand that that's not the case. Um, now the landscape looks like this. And now um, I have a much more long-term vision of my actions in this lifetime because they're only really going to come into fruition, hopefully, in generations to follow my lifetime uh, because these trees are going to take a minimum 30 years to get back to some semblance of how it looked before. Um, provided that I can assist in the replanting and, and help steward the land in that way. Um, and so it also kind of, well, it was definitely a moment of pause of stopping this kind of fast forward moving train that we're all on every day, just like uh, forward momentum and, and really bringing into clarity what, 
you know, what's really important in my life. And it became a much more important priority to give back to the land and, and plant seeds and plant trees, um, to restore the, the landscapes, the native landscapes. And so that's been really, uh, inspiring to me. And it's kind of what's alive for me is, uh, learning this seed way. Um, and gathering lots of seeds, looking at seeds in ways that I never did before, um, and planting seeds and learning how to give back to the landscape in that way uh, is really the, the blessing of the fire having touched the landscape. Uh, is It's opened the doors for me to learn these other aspects. So I'm hoping to still run courses out there once I get some infrastructure rebuilt uh, so that my students can then also experience this way of uh, stewarding the land uh, mixed in with, with all of the movement arts and um, Taoist cultivation arts. How um, you mentioned that it's changed the way that you're looking at seeds. I'm very curious to hear more about that. Yeah, well, because it's when I when I learned how to gather and replant seeds, I kept thinking, wow, this is so sim simple. Why didn't I understand this before? Mm -hmm. um, and because uh, usually I um, would be more oriented to looking at different parts of the plant to harvest, like the leaves or the root or something mm -hmm. like this. And so once I started gathering seed, I just started looking at seeds more, especially in the fall when a lot of them were um, kind of reaching their correct point that you would be able to, to then save them and then replant them. Um, so just starting to look at them in their life cycle more, uh, opening up pine cones. I just like didn't really do that before. I didn't check every single pine cone looking for seeds, and now mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. uh, or observing uh, I, like when I went to like harvest, uh, some nettle seeds, uh, looking for the first time really closely at it and being like, okay, so this is actually like not fully developed yet. I can't harvest this yet. Um, so just looking closer at seeds in, is one way that it's changed. Uh, but also just contemplating how seeds hold these genetics, um, they hold the memories, they adapt to the environments that they're planted in and they evolve in that way. Uh, so becoming like a keeper of that, that seed way and, and, you know, moving seeds from one location to another location causes those seeds to then adapt and change and then they will be unique. Um, and I think it's an important thing for us during these times because we don't know what, you know, with the climate crisis and the West being on fire every summer, we're losing large pieces of land all, all the time. Um, and even when I go for walks around here and I, cause now I see all the trees by age in a way I didn't really see them that way before like I, I contemplate how many years old each tree is mm -hmm. uh, 
so when I see older trees, I, I really stop to, to look at them and I've noticed a lot of them are dying. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's from bark beetle or the drought, I don't know. Uh, and so I'm seeing the old trees dying and what we're left with is a lot of juvenile forests, uh, right. which are like tinder boxes basically right. ready to burn. Um, and so learning how to replant, uh, and nurture the forest for the future to have old growth trees, uh, it has now become like a lifelong goal for me to steward this piece of land and hopefully mm-hmm. other uh, tracts of land. Um, so one thing that I learned about was the sugar pine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sugar pine is like the tallest tree if you look across the landscape. Uh, and uh, there aren't as many left and they only uh, have habitat kind of in like this like kind of stretch of land uh, from Oregon down through California. Mm-hmm. And um, so I focused on replanting the sugar pine um, because if if the lodgepole and the ponderosa and the other species that grow faster, um, if I can help those not take over the canopy mm-hmm. um, and help the sugar pine, you know, rise up to be the tallest part of the canopy, um, like that's that's one goal. And the cool thing about the sugar pine is it's a food source. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a lot of the the seedways um, or the wild tending that I started to learn about is really nurturing, especially plants that provide a food source, which again kind of circles us back to finding more food autonomy and self-reliance uh, mm-hmm. outside of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I somewhat as you're talking about this, then my thought process goes to like, um, I think you're experiencing lessons, uh, and a, that more people need to, most people need to experience right now. Like we're kind of imminently necessary to learn these things and practice these things. And then of course my mind goes to, um, why did this have to happen to you? Because it's not like you were an abusive part of the system. But then again, my mind goes to, well, you're one of the best people this can happen to because you are in a very unique position to disseminate that message and absorb the teachings. And and you have the openness to actually explore these things and steward that knowledge and continue that knowledge you know like you're continuously learning and um and you have active students that you're going to be sharing this information with and i think that's just phenomenal and important and beautiful and thank you (laughs) i'm sorry it had to happen but in some ways it's like you're the best person it happened to yeah well thank you um i I mean i do i didn't stay in that mode for too long of like, ah, why did this happen to me? You know, like that was part of the grief cycle, but especially too, because it was, it happened on my 36th birthday in this year of the ox and I'm year of the ox. Um, so I, I never an easy year for when it's our year. 
Yeah, you know, 36 is the number of the sun and it was this fire energy. Um, and, uh, but I think it's, um, it's neither here nor there that it's happening to me because it's happening to all of us because we all live on this earth. Um, and so it just, I got to witness it more directly sooner, I guess. Um, and I'm not alone, of course, so many people are affected by fires and other um, natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, these kind of, you know, micro apocalypses in our own little worlds. Um, throughout all of time, you know, we, we experience this. Um, uh, but I do feel like if, if these, you know, forests and landscapes are slowly disappearing if if we are on that track forward and can't change it i at least want to be there to witness its beauty you know while it is here and so that's another kind of shift in priorities of just making sure that i see these wild places uh before they're gone or hopefully they won't be gone but um and 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 to help others also experience because I think everyone would love to. It's part of we are nature, um, and it's uh, it's also something that contributes to our health to be in the sunlight and breathing air and seeing the green. Um, I mean, because that was one thing when I walked that landscape fresh after the fire, and there was nothing alive. There was no green anywhere. I felt like I was dying and couldn't breathe um and so we are of the landscape you know our bodies are of the landscape and uh those bits of green that we get to see or the you know clear blue skies this is all part of our life breath what what allows us to stay vital and uh so to imagine a world where like if the world was always how it is out here in the West in the summers where it's just smoky and air quality is bad and you can't see the sun and you can't see the blue skies. And if the forests were gone, um, the, the feedback from that is, is difficult. That's one thing that kind of still gets me is when I walk the landscape out there, because it used to be, I would just, it would be like walking in heaven, you know, it's just happiness and trees and the sunlight glittering through the pine needles. And that was the positive feedback that I was getting from the landscape. And now uh, the feedback is uh, this contemplation of death and transformation and impermanence. Yeah, going back to your point, um, I think I would rather live the last, days of my life in stewardship of the land even if it's futile than in some societal pursuit of monetary gain or something so shallow yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah it's, it's hard to escape that though yeah. you know in some ways we can't oh, fully but yeah. so it's yeah balance it's amazing that um, our fortuitous that um, I just sent Taryn this. I don't know if you're familiar with the game B uh, idea concept system 
whatever project. Um, but it's basically, uh, I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about, part of what we're talking about. Short is, version. Game A yeah. is the game theoretic, extractive, win-lose, um, you know, accretion dynamics that have been at play through what Western modern folk think of as the entirety of civilization. We can question whether or not that's an accurate framing, but there certainly is at least, you know, for much of recorded history, this has been the way that humans have played. Game B is whatever isn't that. So Omni so it's kind of like red pill, non- blue pill? Uh, well, that's, that's a step in the right direction. Potentially. That's also been co-opted so much by the alt-right that I'm hesitant to uh-huh. lean into that particular. <laughs> um, and, and, and game B is not, it, to be clear, it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's right. like an idea of what might happen if things were, if there was a greater level of sovereignty in individuals, if people were working together um, for, you know, a closed loop system that didn't extract and turn into trash for the sake of monetary gain, that there were no externalities, um, you know, so like something that is literally raising everybody up. There's lots of critiques of all kinds of things within that, but generally that's what game B gestures towards is some kind of, you know, not utopic, but actually uh, realizable, truly, um, Egalitarian is not even exactly the right word, but like a society where harmony and the collective good are fundamental to mm-hmm. that societal expression. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, back to back to oh, you. Cool. I just wanted to give some context. Well, I just no, I mean that's that's all I wanted to say about it. Except, so it like um, Schmachtenberger was talking about his experiences in Bali relatively recently, where he was um, saying that. Um, talking to some of the uh, indigenous people and saying how that things like um, a museum is where like culture and art goes to die. That's when that's an expression that it's just like, it's finite. Now you've encapsulated it in time and space and place and it's, it's no longer living. So it's no longer really art anymore. And so we should always be, when, if we're going to add something, we're going to build something, we're going to create something, it should be beautiful and should be serving the land. And that should be really like the only necessary criteria, right? Because if it's in service of beauty, that means it's a positive force. And if it's in service of the, of nature, then it's, um, it's not coming from a self-centered, uh, human-centered um, place. And that's where we need to shift. It's not about humans. I think that's the biggest message that we can teach anybody that might potentially listen to this. It's not about us. And I hope that's what some people are getting out of some of the the catastrophes we're learning Mm -hmm. uh, that we're experiencing right now. It's like, Mm -hmm. clearly, (laughs) whatever the intention of life is, it's not about us. It's about, you know, symbionts it's about helping each other it's about you know the collective good you know Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i think looking towards that that future and being able to see it see see how it functions and each of us in our own 
lives trying to be exemplary of that vision is is all I feel like I have the power or control to do uh, is try to manifest that vision in my own life to the best that I can and and hope that that if we all do that you know then we could move towards that vision of the future yeah I'm thinking of uh, Donna Haraway coined the term sympoesis because she had a critique of autopoetic which was that like nothing is becoming itself everything is becoming with everything else mm -hmm. right and so whether we like the direction that's going in it's true and so as both of you were saying for us to all like continue to lean in you know to what we can do in our day-to-day -day lives what we can share with each other to to help steward and be custodians of a sympoesis that's actually um clearing cleaning you know encouraging a world where our children and our children's children and depending on who you talk to it's 200 to a thousand years of this cleanup is probably necessary for us to get to some place where those beings that are living in that world to come might be able to be living in a place that largely has the intelligence to take care of itself right so you know as you were pointing out Lindsay, it's like a it's a pretty long-term project that we all have the the privilege and um opportunity and responsibility to engage in in whatever ways we can right mm -hmm. so. yeah and even just the, the shifting of uh that view of time that the things that we do in this lifetime are for the next generations if that could become a more present part of our general worldview i think that that could be part of it awesome so we're coming in around 90 minutes which is usually all we ask of anybody to spend with us since everyone's got lots of things to do are there any thoughts you want to leave folks with we'll be happy to put um, information about your programs and you know wherever people can contact you if you'd like we can put that in the show notes so don't feel like you need to talk through those things at the moment unless you wish to but just want to see if there's anything you want to say before we wrap it up um sorry the sound my sound got kind of messed up uh <laughs> I, can't, I can't hear you i was just uh, saying can you hear it can, can you hear now? I can't hear you. I can hear Lucas. Maybe Lucas, Lucas you could you say go. that again. I'll, I'll take it then. Take it. <laughs> so, he's just saying that we're, you know, we want to be respectful of your time because it's about 90 minutes. And so um, we're going to have all, like, we'll put all your contact stuff in the show notes, like your website and, um, you know, any ways, any other things that you want to share with the, the audience, but also if there's anything specifically you want to plug at the moment, like you have some seminars coming up or you have some classes coming up, uh, you can let everybody know that now. And then we'll also put that in the show notes. But remember, oh, this okay. isn't going to be out cool. for a few weeks. So if it's really time oh, sensitive, that probably won't. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you can find everything uh, through the links that you'll put in the show notes. And okay. um, 
I, I do have some of the in-person immersion courses coming up this summer in May and August. So you could, if you're interested in that, look into that. Uh, those are filling up pretty fast. Uh, but um, otherwise, yeah, I think you can find everything online about my online courses and, and all of that. So yeah, thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. We really yeah, thanks for it. having me. It was fun talking. Yeah, we have to take another d deep dive into the Taoism next time. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Deep dive. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like specifics of your training and stuff. So we'll yeah, pin let's that. Let's do that.